my favorite Christmas story growing up was the Polar Express. Came out in 1985, became a movie in 2003, but I loved it when my mom would read this to my sister and I, and I loved the pictures. It's a story of a young boy who was woken up late at night on Christmas Eve by the whistle of a train. And soon that train whisked him off with a bunch of other kids all the way to the North Pole, where Santa will give out the first gift of the year. Picking up the story there. Santa marched over to us and pointing to me said, let's have this fellow here. He jumped into his sleigh. The conductor handed me up. I sat on Santa's knee and he asked, now, what would you like for Christmas? I knew that I could have any gift I could imagine. But what I wanted more than anything was one silver bell from Santa's sleigh. Santa told an elf to cut a bell from a reindeer's harness. He stood holding the bell high over his head and he called out the first gift of Christmas. Now sadly, our young man had a hole in his pajama pocket and he lost that bell about as soon as it was handed to him. And he proceeded to ride the train home that night heartbroken because he had lost the bell. But the next morning, Christmas morning, he and his sister were going through the gifts and after they had opened everything, they noticed one last small package with a note on it for him. The note read this, found this on the seat of my sleigh, fix that hole in your pocket, signed Mr. C. He and his sister got the bell out and its sound was magical, but their mom and dad couldn't hear it at all. They thought the bell was dead. And the book ends with the lone picture of that bell with words that are almost haunting. At one time, most of my friends could hear the bell, but as years passed, it fell silent for all of them. Even my sister found one Christmas that she could no longer hear its sweet sound. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me. As it, did, as it does for all who truly believe. Returning to that story as a grown-up, I see in it a parable. Whether because of busyness or disappointments or doubts, life can lose its sense of enchantment. Dreams or hopes or beliefs we once cherished it can give away to grown-up pragmatism or worse, cynicism. Life can lose its sense of meaning and hope, like a bell whose sound we can no longer hear. Do you know, for a long time, it was the Christian story that gave to the world its music and meaning. Far from a cosmic accident, every blade of grass, every shining star, every face, you ever saw was a gift from God created to glorify God. Maybe you used to believe that story or maybe you've believed it for so long that its ring is starting to dim or maybe you've never heard it at all. 
the Christmas story, which we celebrate tonight of God coming into the world as Jesus, the Christmas story really does take us into the center of the Christian story. And I want to turn this evening with you to St. Paul's account, really his poetic account of the Christmas story. It's in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. You're welcome to open your Bible and look at it or use the blue pew Bible in front of you. But I want to take you into this, this hymn, these six verses that were written by a real man named St. Paul to a real group of Christians in a real old town called Philippi. And I want to see if we can't hear the music of Christmas again. And I hope in Paul's account of the starry night, you'll see three things. Number one, a place to find yourself. Number two, the God who humbles himself. And number three, a calling that can heal the self. So first, a place to find yourself. Imagine that I were to hold before you all 882 pages of the Penguin Classic Edition of David Copperfield. And for the sake of the example, imagine you've never read it. And I open it up and I pull out a single page from the middle of the novel. And I put that page in front of you and I point to a single paragraph and I ask you to read it. And so you do. You read, as I wrote to Agnes on a fine evening by my open window, and the remembrance of her clear, calm eyes and gentle face came stealing over me. It shed such a peaceful influence upon the hurry and agitation in which I had been living lately, and of which my very happy to, happiness partook in some degree, that it soothed me to tears. And when you finished reading that, I asked you, do you know what that means? And you looked at me and said, what do you think I can't read? I know every word on that page. I know every word in that paragraph. And you proceed to even parse the grammar of that paragraph perfectly. Of course you know what it means. Or do you? You, you, may, you may know the words in that paragraph. You may even be able to guess that Copperfield is the one writing. But you don't know what it means. You don't know what's going on. You don't know that even as Copperfield writes to his dearest Agnes, he does so just moments after becoming engaged to Dora. And you don't know the twists and turns that led him here. And you don't know what this letter he's writing to Agnes forebodes. And so here's the, the principle. You can understand something and you can misunderstand something at the same time. You can know every word in that paragraph and all its grammar, and you can have no idea what it means. And this is why what Paul does with the Christmas story is so important to see. He doesn't risk letting us 
read it out of context. And where there are many accounts of Jesus' birth in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that focus in on the historical events immediately surrounding Jesus coming into the world, Paul devotes only a phrase to this. Verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. That's his starry night, that's Bethlehem, and he moves on. And in the six verses that festoon, or are like bookends around that single night, Paul gives us the story of everything. All history, all reality, all humanity. I'll show you this. So in these six verses, in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, Paul begins by telling us that Jesus was in the form of God. He's referring to his pre-temporal existence in eternity. By the end of the poem, Paul has a vision that is as far into history as you can look of every knee and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. That's all of history. Paul also situates Jesus coming in light of all of humanity. At the end of the poem, he mentions that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. What does that mean? That means everybody. Under the earth for Paul means everybody who's dead. So, so he's situating this story, this single leaf, this single page about Jesus' birth in light of the story of all humanity. He also situates it in light of the story of all reality. He's speaking of the preexistent God who was not created, and he's speaking of the heavens, the earth, and everything under the earth, all that was created. And so Paul is saying, and this is the first principle or first lesson to draw out, he's saying, if you want to understand the babe in the manger, do not rip that page out of the novel. You need to understand this is about God. You need to understand this is about your future. You need to understand, this is Paul, you need to understand that the story of Christmas, friends, is really the story of everything. Now, what does this have to do with us? Did you see that Paul draws all of us into the story? In verse 9, I mean, every knee. That's got to include you if you have knees. Every tongue. So here's the first thing. Paul, I think, is showing us that if we want to understand ourselves, we too have to read our little paragraph, our 77 years, in light of this cosmic story. I mean, it's one thing to learn that you hail from Virginia or America or Africa or Australia. It's a very different thing to realize you come from God. Or it's one thing to, to learn that you have talents and gifts and to develop these things so that maybe you can build a career, maybe in business, or maybe you can use these gifts to build a family. That's a good and noble thing. It's an altogether different thing to learn that your greatest talent, your most unique ability, ability is that you are one of the beings that God made who has a capacity to know him, who is actually made with a soul to worship him, and that is your destiny. To not know that about yourself would be a tragedy. The Christmas story, if you will see yourself drawn into it, is a place where you can find yourself. And friend, let me just ask you, what story are you trying to understand your life in light of? Science? 
It's just kind of this piece of this natural thing unfolding. Or maybe you just look within and however you feel the ebb and flow of your emotions, maybe that's a wide enough lens for you to be confident that you really understand yourself. It is entirely possible to think we understand ourselves and completely misunderstand ourselves at the same time. Find yourself in the story of Christmas. Find yourself in the story of everything. So that's the first thing I see from Paul's telling, is that this is a story we can find ourselves in. The second thing, however, is that it's a story where we meet the God who humbles himself. There is a church in Bethlehem called the Church in the Nativity. And it sits where historians think is the literal site where Jesus was born. And the doorway into the Church of the Nativity is really small. It's only four feet high. It's two feet wide. You have to bow down to get through it. And they call it the door of humility. And it's fitting because Jesus' journey to be with us was nothing less than the passageway through a door of humility. This is what Paul focuses on through his poem, through the first half of it, as he tries to help us see what was really going on when Jesus was born in human likeness. And it is a great odyssey of humiliation that ought to strike us. There's a great descent. I'll show you the three steps it takes. First, Jesus determines not to leverage his equality with God to his advantage. But instead, he turns away in total submission to the Father's will in order to serve the interest of humankind. Second, Jesus has to conceal his glory under the weakness of flesh. The Son of God doesn't lose his divinity when he becomes human. He conceals it. Verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. Third, appearing now among us as one of us, Jesus must further humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of being rejected by his own, incriminated, and killed. Being found in human form, verse seven, he, excuse me, verse eight, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And notice that all this was done willingly. Twice we hear he emptied himself. Verse eight, he humbled himself. This is his disposition. It is according to what he is choosing to do this. Now, Jesus' humility is not like our humility. Not exactly. We typically learn humility when it's forced upon us. We just learn the hard way that there are people that are better than us, right? And so you become humble because you have to. That is never the case with Jesus. Jesus' superiority over every human he ever encountered was qualitatively infinite. Therefore, Jesus always had to choose humility, knowing even among those of us who would ignore him, 
day by day, knowingly hiding himself. Even now, you see, he conceals himself. If he appeared to us, if he appeared to you, we would be lying on the floor prostrate in fear. Yet he holds back, allowing us to persist in doubt and apathy and indifference and mockery. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? In Shakespeare's play, Henry V, on the night before the battle of Agincourt, the young king, Henry, goes out to be with his men. Now he knows he can't appear before them in his glory, so he conceals himself. He, he wears a dark cloak and he's got his hood up and he goes out in this night and it's misty and they, some of the men recognize someone. They say, who goes there? He says, it's a friend. And he joins the men, and, and with a few, he falls into conversation. And, and now the men know they're outnumbered. They're afraid about the battle the next day. And they start to talk about the king. And they call into the question the king's integrity. And they begin to say things like, their blood will be on his head if they die in battle. And they begin to insult the king. And he's sitting there. He's still concealing himself. And he gently tries to defend the king, saying things like, well, I think there's nowhere he'd rather be than here with you if he could be. And an argument breaks out because they think he's defending the king. And one of the, the men goes so far as to hit him, to strike him with his glove, which is an offense that would be punishable by death. Except that Henry will not reveal himself. Now, why would he do that? Do you know why he did that? Because he wanted to be near his men. He loved them. He wanted to comfort them. And he knew they couldn't handle him in his full regalia. But he wanted to be close to them. Friends, this is what's going on when the Son of God conceals his glory and bears up with our ignorance, our arrogance, our insults, just taking them. He wants to be near us. You know, Jesus taught his followers, this is probably one of the most important things he taught them, that if you see him, you see God the Father. He says this in John 14, 9 to Philip. If you see me, you see God. So, let me ask you, in this in this great odyssey of humiliation, if you're watching Jesus make this descent, what is it showing you about God? Maybe you have never believed in God. Maybe you don't think much about God. Maybe you have different ideas about God, like he flies off the handle, he's angry, just judges people for their sin. But, but what does this say to you about God? I think Jesus' humiliation is revealing the compassion that is deep inside the heart of God. That being drawn to the lowly, being drawn to the sorrowful and sinful, not only is it not incompatible with majesty and greatness, it turns out to be the manifestation of greatness. This is who God is. He is a being that lays his glory by to draw near to the sorrowful and the sinful. That's the second thing we see. 
The Christmas story is a place where you can find yourself. It's also a place where you can see the self that humbled himself. Third and finally, Christmas story gives us a calling that can heal the self. Jesus' journey doesn't end in humiliation, but in resurrection and exaltation. Paul says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you like that passage as an image of your future? I mean, I mean you, anybody reading this can tell Paul is including everybody in this. And, and Paul is saying, not maybe, he's saying that sometime in the future, every one of us will bend our knee before Jesus and confess with our mouth that he is Lord. In other words, a great dethronement awaits each one of us where we either willingly will step off the throne of our lives or we will be removed as we acknowledge him as Lord. How does that make you feel? Like, does it feel exciting to think that your great purpose in life has been that you've been made by God in order to honor him? Rather than being designed to honor yourself, you've been made and you will honor him? Is that a strange vision of what you're born to do? In 1966, Philip Reef published his seminal work, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in it, Reef said we're living through a great sea change in self-understanding. A great shift from the, what he called the religious man who understood that he was born to be saved to the psychological man who understands that he or she is born to be pleased. Born to be pleased. Isn't that how we go through life? Like the world is out there, stuff is out there in order to make us happy. And we're made to be happy, so that's our right. And yet we have a mental health crisis sweeping across our youngest generation. And this is where I want you to see that the call coming through Paul's Christmas story is not just countercultural, but healing. You see, if, if we can see it and understand it, what he's saying when he's envisioning Christ coming into the earth to die, to save you, to bear your sins, to be humiliated by your sins so that you don't have to be, so that you can be reconciled with God, so that you can then turn and begin to honor and please God. You see what Paul is saying is, you haven't been created to be pleased. You have been created to please. You have been created to please God, which means to honor Him, to love Him, to give your life to Him. And here's the great surprise the great healing, it is actually in learning to please the other that the self is pleased. Have you ever found that? Have you ever found how good it feels to please someone that you truly admire? A parent, a great teacher or coach, a spouse, a sibling, and to say, it feels so good to make you happy. That's all Paul is saying. 
when he pictures you kneeling before Jesus, throwing your crown on the ground, saying, I love you, that's all he's picturing. You found the secret. You were born and put on earth to please God and in that find your great pleasure. Friends, we live in a world that is increasingly governed and ruled by pride. Look within, find your story, express it, and make sure others honor it. It's a world built on pride. Do you realize the gospel is inviting us to a world built around humility? How different would that be? Near the end of Polar Express, just after the boys arrived home, he stands in the doorway of his house, waving goodbye to his friends on the train. His family's still asleep. It's dark in the living room. But through that open door comes the glow of that train and all it represents to his young heart. Maybe that's you this Christmas. You're standing in the doorway with the dark world of unbelief and hopelessness behind you, just wishing it could be true, wishing there was something outside of this, that God was real, that he really was like Jesus, that he really came, that he really came for you, that he really sits and draws nigh, that he really has a plan for your life. Friends, if Christmas tells us anything, it's that God has come and he has opened that door from his side. All you need to do is step out in belief. And you will hear again, or for the first time, the sound of that bell. Amen.